It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 141, King Ahab, Queen Jezebel, the prophet Elijah, and the famine in Israel. 1 Kings 16.29 In the thirty-eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel twenty-two years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him, He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So we gave a brief bio on Ahab before. He's the carnal man, blown by the spiritual winds, agreeable to whatever spirit speaks to him. He has no character, no faithfulness, no steadfast spirit. He's the total picture of the flesh. He marries Jezebel, and she is horrible. She doesn't take long to begin her horrible reign. I say this because she is really the power behind his throne. What she says goes, Okay, Ahab manages the military, and political matters, but inside northern Israel, it appears she really calls all the shots. He bows a knee to her god and builds a Baal temple and an Asherah pole near his ivory palace. So Jezebel basically becomes the head of the state religion. She is a radical religious control freak. She had over 400 Baal priests and 400 Asherah priests who reported directly to her. With her 800-plus priests, she used them in a variety of means. These guys were magicians and warlocks, but I get the feel she used them also to be her private henchmen. Or they had henchmen under them. She appears to not take long in convincing her husband to let her do whatever she wants. There are multiple references that Jezebel was hunting down and killing the Lord's prophets in the Bible, and this appears to happen quite swiftly after she becomes queen. Let's consider this. It says she was hunting down and killing the Lord's prophets. It's like some scene from Star Wars where everyone with the force was singled out to be killed by the dark side. Jezebel is singling out the prophets and murdering them, and Ahab is allowing this to happen. I told you, she was wicked. Now this goes further. If she is killing off the prophets, she's also forcing her religion to become the state religion. And anyone confessing to worshiping God would have been discriminated against, thrown in prison, or possibly killed as well. See, the funny thing is, with believers sometimes, it's hard to distinguish between who is a prophet and who is not. Technically, what's the difference? Moses said, I wish you were all prophets. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Or what about Samuel? Speak, Lord, for I am listening. She basically, by force, is crushing all faith in God in northern Israel, with her idol-worshipping religious Gestapo class and violently enforcing her religion. 
She's bad. I mean, really bad. And Ahab is doing nothing about it. Probably because he is shielded from all the bad PR by Jezebel herself. And she has successfully distracted him within the walls of his ivory palace. Couple points to make here. It's not possible to stamp out faith in God. Look at the beginning of the church. When the persecution was the greatest, the church continued to grow. How about China, 50 plus years ago? Some people say Christianity was dead. Look at it now. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom. In this case, the more prophets she killed, the more God protected and would rise up later. God always has a remnant, even if we don't think so. Elijah will find this out later. Now there was a head of the household of Ahab. His name was Obadiah. Now Obadiah was basically God's spy in the house of Ahab. He was given a place of influence, and he ran the ivory palace, and kept it organized, and kept the grounds, and kept the entertainment and supplies coming into the palace. He had a very dirty job considering the ivory palace of Ahab, but he fulfilled his duties and earned the trust of his king. I get the take Obadiah was a faithful believer in God, and in fact, I get the take his faith was okay, but that his faith grew over time, and he saw the injustices of Jezebel killing off the prophets, and he had to do something about it. After all, he was a believer as well. So back to our Star Wars comparison. He sent those with the gift of prophecy that he could find, a.k.a. the Force, into hiding in the outermost parts of the kingdom and fed them out of his own expense. And he had, um, he had 50 of them in ca- one cave and 50 in another cave. This was horribly expensive for Obadiah to do, but he continually sent food to the 100 prophets he rescued who were hiding in caves. Now, don't get me wrong, Obadiah was the manager of the house of Ahab, so he was probably able to skim off the top to feed the prophets in hiding. After all, it's for a good cause, and the witch Jezebel would never know. The problem comes when the famine hits, and Obadiah has to feed them most likely out of his own pocket because the food becomes so scarce. Ahab loves his army and his military. He gets into his chariots, and he loves horses. He builds up the chariot corps in Jezreel, and there will be a secondary palace he builds there as well. And I am sure Jezebel loved it when her husband had to go north on military maneuvers. This gave her full reign over the kingdom. Well, the first years of his kingship were marked with a great harvest of foodstuffs. There was a cold war between northern Israel and Judah, and Ahab probably felt the fear of the Lord when Jehoshaphat becomes king and he builds up his fortifications. Instead of submitting to God, Ahab's answer was the rebuilding of Jericho as a strategic counterblow. 1 Kings 16.34 In Ahab's time, Hael of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abariam, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. So this was an excellent strategic move, but Ahab didn't care for the cost. There would have been no doubt this curse was known to all, for no one had rebuilt the city yet, probably due to the reason of the curse. In this case, Ahab most likely ordered his foreman to rebuild the city back regardless. When the two sons of Ahel, 
died, the fear of the Lord must have even visited Ahab to remind him of the power of God. This fear of the Lord must have been acknowledged by Ahab, but the next day he turned right back to the Baals. The Cold War between Ahab and Jehoshaphat would quickly come to an end. After the future famine, when there was a marriage Ahab arranged with his daughter with Jezebel, whose name is Athaliah, and Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram. This marriage was no doubt a great idea planted by Jezebel into her future husband, and Ahab ran with it. This action by Jehoshaphat would be the worst blunder as king, allowing his son, Jehoram, to marry into the family line of northern Israel. Athaliah was a chip off the old block, and if she was allowed, she probably would have been even worse than her mother, Jezebel. Jezebel played a key role in the demonization of her daughter, and what a shock it must have been to Jehoshaphat when he realized he married off his son to this horrible woman, when her true colors will shine later. Ahab is living a happy life with children and riches and a large army. His first years have been quite successful with riches flowing from his alliance with Tyre. Getting confident in his comfortable, sinful lifestyle, nothing ever went wrong. No one was able to curse him. No one could get a, get to him. Every day false prophets came and went and blessed him, and he is honored. Until one day, a long-haired man he had never seen before barged into the ivory palace, pushing aside the guards. Who are you? What do you want? Ahab shouted. I'm here to speak to you, king. What is it, my servant? I'm no servant of you, Elijah shouted. Ahab glared at him, but the long-haired man shouted at the king, Because of your wickedness, king, there will be no rain for three years. Jezebel screamed over her husband, Seize him, and the guards appeared from different directions with spears converging to seize the long-haired man. But he turned around, and as fast as he appeared, he disappeared and couldn't be found again. The long-haired man was Elijah, and he didn't literally disappear. This is more of an expression of how he was there, and then he was gone. It could have gone down like this, or easily it could have been the opposite, that he showed up, prophesied, and all the dark prophets in the room laughed at him. Regardless, he prophesied a three-year famine, and it will start immediately. Imagine where you live with no rain. And I, it's hard for me to do that because I live in Seattle. <laughs> That's funny. But imagine no rain in the spring. That would mean there would be no fall harvest. Imagine no rain for an entire year. No crops would survive. The harvest would end. There would be no fresh fruit and veggies. The forest would start to die. Two years, the ponds would dry up. The springs would go down. The lakes would diminish in size. The grass would die. And horses... Ahab's pride and joy as a military man would have to be eventually killed for food if there was no grass for them or hay. The land would start to look like a desert, and poverty would set in as riches were sent abroad to buy food. Remember the last episode how the fear of the Lord was falling upon the neighboring lands of Judah? Judah was probably enriched by the trade of foodstuffs because northern Israel was probably forced to go south to buy food. The famine reduced northern Israel's power greatly. Did Ahab repent and look for Elijah so that he could repent with him? No, 
Instead, he and Jezebel sent people far all over the place, and even abroad, to search for Elijah and to take off his head. But Elijah wasn't far. He was innocently led by the Lord to a brook where he was fed by ravens, and he lived like a nursery rhyme fed by animals. No kidding. Check it out. 1 Kings 17, 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, hide in Kerioth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I will have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerioth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Yes, that's what you just heard. Ravens supplied him food. I don't know what to say about this in many ways. I mean, what can you say? The birds brought him food. I don't really know what to do. Like, birds? Yeah. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Hey, I guess this is good a place as any for me to make a correction we made forever back. Back in the Balaam episode, I said there was only two times in the Bible where an animal speaks. Well, this is incorrect. I mentioned before the snake spoke for the devil in Genesis, and Balaam was rebuked by a donkey. And I said there was only two animals in the Bible that speak. Well, I was reading Revelation the other night and noticed an eagle flies over the world and speaks of an upcoming judgment in Revelation 8. So I was mistaken. Three animals speak in the Bible, not two. Sorry about that. I don't get the take. Elijah conversed with these ravens. They just brought him food. But if they did, that would make four animals. But still, don't know what to say about this raven meat and bread season. Let's examine other raymond scenes in the Bible. Honestly, there's the quail and manna in the wilderness for food and a bird connection. There was the raven out of the ark, which didn't return, symbolizing there was some sort of land for Noah to land on. Also, ravens are an unclean bird. Crazy God was sending an unclean bird to bring Elijah food during the famine. It speaks to the John the Baptist symbolism that Elijah represents. John prepared the way for the Lord and a light to the Gentiles. There will be a repetitive theme of miracles done for those outside of Israel and a breaking of the written code in cases like this with the ravens. Soon Elijah will go to a Gentile widow outside of Israel and bring her provision and resurrection power. Elisha will later be used to heal Naaman, an Aramean general. Here it would be wrong to not reference God's provision in a time of lack. God is the provider, this we know. In the wilderness, God fed them supernaturally. God provides through abundance, but also through weird and mysterious ways. We should never doubt the many ways God can provide. Now this brook was like any other small stream during a famine, limited in days. It was probably there for about a season or two before it dried up. Over a year into the famine, Ahab and Jezebel were feeling the effects of the extreme drought, hitting their country and their lands and impoverishing them, and no one could find Elijah. And when the brook dried up, Elijah was led by the Lord into the lion's den. He led him to go towards Tyre in the direction of Sidon. It's funny, 
Jezebel didn't think to send people to her own country to find Elijah, though he ended up there. The famine struck Tyre as well, and Elijah boldly went up to a dying suicidal widow and asked for food. Yes, that's what he does. I'm telling you, the Lord provides in the most mysterious ways. His ways are not our ways. 1 Kings 17.7 Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make some for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. How's that for a logical solution? I mean, it's the 101 of miracle working. Do whatever the Lord says. Regardless of its practical nature, do it. In this case, the instructions for Elijah was to go to a suicidal, starving woman and ask her for flour and bread. This he does, and the Lord delivers. What a prophet. The Lord giveth and taketh away. The Lord giveth to the humble and meek and persecuted, and the Lord taketh away from the rich and powerful, greedy and violent. So far, we've got a famine prophecy, ravens feeding him at a brook, a multiplication of oil and flour, and now we arrive at resurrection power. This probably occurs at the beginning of the third year of the famine. And as you know, third day, or in many cases, third year references indicate resurrection power. 1 Kings 17.17 17. Sometime later, the son of the widow who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Do you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the boy and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Check out how he prayed for the raising of the dead. 
This method will be the most common for resurrection prayer until Jesus arrives, spreading out and laying upon the dead person and praying. It's a spirit-on-spirit prayer. Check out the miracles he performs, and let's just list them so far. Just because it sounds so far-fetched, I I love it. He he prophesied a three-year famine. Then he goes to a brook where he's fed by ravens. Okay? Next, he goes to the heart of the enemy's territory, and he asks a widow for food who's about to die. Basically, he's multiplying bread of sorts, and this is before Jesus. Power encounter Elijah, and this is just a taste of what's to come. Oh yeah, he finishes this season with the raising of the dead child to life. Yes, that's what he does. The explosion of God's power must be rocking the heavenlies in northern Israel. Now picture with me what's going on in Sidon. He's staying at the widow's house and in the enemy's territory. In Sidon, Elijah witnesses firsthand the evils of Baal worship. He hears of their child sacrifice and the horrors of their religion. Every day he wants to do something about it, but the time has not yet arrived. But when the Lord allows him to confront Ahab, he knows the place of confrontation. He wants to confront them at the border of northern Israel on a mountaintop in one of their evil high places. Next week, we have the showdown at Mount Carmel in one of the most dramatic prophet versus witchcraft scenes in the whole Bible. Get ready. It's going to be a lot of fun. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, let's go in depth about the Romans 5 effect and speak to the provisions of God. Let's start with comparing the revelations of God in this time. In the south, during the Jehoshaphat revival, God was being revealed through the king and the priest in a faithful time for the nation of Judah. God was worshipped by the ruling and religious class, Idols were being thrown down, and God increased his presence and his favor. Yet in the north, darkness took over, the political and religious system of northern Israel. God was not allowed by the powers to be to manifest in these areas, so he would break through and show his power. Instead of considering this a miserable time for northern Israel, we can look at this as an invitation for God to manifest himself and break through these systems through powerful means. In a perfect world, the kings and priests ruled in righteousness. But in this case, though the political and religious systems were taken over by darkness, God will manifest his presence in a different way. In the north, he didn't manifest himself through the kings or priests, for they pretty much had converted to darkness, or they had fled the country, those who were faithful to God. But instead, he came and manifested himself through the prophets. The primary prophet of this time frame... Elijah, we're speaking of, was unkempt, unreligious. He didn't abide by the customs of his country. He didn't speak like them. He didn't walk like them. He wasn't a Joseph or a Daniel. He cared little for the traditions of his nation, but he cared for the faith in his God. Consider this. When God is manifest and honored and worshiped correctly, kings and priests operate in authentic authority and leadership, and the kingdom of God flows downward. When kings and priests do not operate or walk in authentic righteousness and authority, prophets arise to confront them and show the power of God. God will always reveal himself. We just have to understand how he is revealing himself. Also, let's consider how God provides for his people. 
In the south, during the revival, great quantities of cattle were being given as gifts from Arabia to Jehoshaphat. In the north, famine sucked life from the land of Judah, but the prophets were provided for by a servant of Ahab's household, Obadiah, and Elijah was provided for by unclean, unkept ravens. God provides, whether through kingly offerings and gifts, or through the claws and beaks of an unclean bird. Now the Roman 5 effect. Elijah is operating in power and miracles. Where did he get this power? Jesus casted out demons, and they said he had a demon. Where did Elijah get his power? Don't know. Did he get it from an impartation or receive a heavenly encounter? I mean, we know he got his power from God. It was the power of God. But what was the scene or the moment where God impacted him, where he received this impartation of power? Don't know. That's the point. Elijah prophesies the famine with incredible boldness and goes to the brook where he's fed by ravens. Bizarre. I love how this episode ended with resurrection power in the third year of the famine, a dead raising in the midst of the time of the worst worldly kings in northern Israel's history. And as I chewed on how to end this episode and relate it to today, a question came to me. What is it with the explosion of God's power? Why all of a sudden was there a resurrection? Why all of a sudden a prophet of power and the multiplication of food and oil and ravens feeding a man during a famine? What's with the explosion of God's power? And the answer has to simply be the Romans 5.20 effect. Where sin increased, God's grace increased all the more. We've seen many people go on mission trips and they come back with the wildest stories of miracles on the mission field. The village in Africa where everyone was healed when the evangelist showed up or the crusade where nobody's in America are praying the most simple prayers and incredible miracles are occurring in India. What's going on? Let us never use this as an excuse to not pursue miracles domestically, but in a place like India, which is nicknamed the land of 10,000 gods, where the power of God is preached, incredible things happen. Why? Because the Roman 5 effect. Where sin and idol worship abounds, the grace of God is on even further display. It seems the darker the place one steps in for evangelism, the greater the power. Let us never confuse this or let it be an excuse to not desire to see a move of God in America. But God desires for his name to be preached. Elijah was the man of the hour. He stepped in incredible faith and God answered his faith-filled declarations. Out of the wilderness stepped a man to prepare a way for the Lord to be magnified. Now let's move into today. Elijah is just an odd guy in the Bible because he shows up out of nowhere. But let's consider his context. He shows up in a time when another country has experienced great political and religious revival. But his country was invaded and controlled by darkness. The real followers of God were being persecuted or killed. The king and his false prophets were evil. Into this evil world, God calls Elijah's. It would be wrong for us to not think people have Elijah-type callings today. Elijah is a model for us to see and understand. Elijah's are called up by God to confront the political and religious systems and to bring the people to faith with displays of God's power. Are you in a land where the political and religious leaders have walked away from God? God wants to change their hearts as well as the hearts of the people back to God. 
I pray some of you who are listening understand this message and that it relates to you, that you've been called to be like Elijah and speak God's word to the political religious leaders of today. If you feel the call of being a radical follower of Jesus like Elijah, raise your hands and ask for God to fill you with his power and boldness to preach the gospel and declare God's truth. For where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com, share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.